0: You may be seated. Turn with me. If you brought your Bibles, or if you uh, need a Bible, there's a few Bibles you can turn to. Turn with me, and let us read together. First John, chapter five: A much-loved letter. And a love letter from God to us. Let me read 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You can also follow along on the uh, insert in your bulletin. This is the Word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. let us pray heavenly father you know each of us better than we know ourselves you know what we need where we're at in life what where our hearts are and what the distractions might be may you faithfully apply your word this morning to each of us as we need your word is powerful it's a two-edged sword It is strong to equip and to encourage, to challenge us, to rebuke us, to train us, to correct us. Oh, Lord, do as you see fit. We cast ourselves at your feet and desire to learn from you this morning. Take away the dross and leave only your pure truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Losing a business because one followed their biblical convictions. Imprisoned over refusing to condone or promote a biblically prohibited lifestyle. Marginalized, both in the halls of government and the marketplace. The Christian worldview being blamed for things that it never did. One religion being blamed for the actions of another. The vilification of Christianity and the church through political correctness, and cultural correctness. Oh, wait a minute, I'm talking about the first century. I know it sounds a lot like our day, but John and the the church in his day were going through the exact same things. The hostility levied against God and His Christ and His church were oftentimes unbearable in the first century. And I know that in the 30 years of my walking with Christ, I have never seen the hostilities at such a, at such a high level than I have today in our society and our culture. And so I think that we, what this does is that for me it, it heightens in, in my awareness of the preciousness of Scripture and the principles therein. And In John's day, when he was writing, he wanted to get across the anchor points by which the people he led could hold on to, be encouraged by, not just survive in their society, but to thrive and to be a shining light, an example of Christ. The Apostle John was an old man by first century standards, by even our standards, but by the time he was writing this particular epistle, he was probably close to 80, maybe 85 years of age. He was a pillar of the early church, and now he was the last living apostle. What was prophesied by the Savior that John would be... Uh, would, would not experience the same type of, of martyrdom as the other apostles has come true in his life. And he has been allowed to live a long life and <clears throat> to be able to, given the call to strengthen the churches that exist. He had long since returned from his exile on the island of Patmos where he wrote the, or was given the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He had also authored a gospel account of Jesus Christ, which today is probably the most loved gospel of the four. Yet as he was writing this letter that we call 1 John, he probably took another stroll down memory lane. And as his memories of this man Jesus flashed before him, he starts out with these words what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And as he was penning those words, his mind was at another place and time, some 50 or 60 years earlier, dwelling upon the man who absolutely changed his life forever. And I just turned 52, and I try to think back 20 years ago, and it's a lot of foggy memories, a lot of fuzzy memories, but there are certain memories that stand out above the rest. For John, even though 60, 70, 50, 60, 70 years had passed, he hung on to the, the anchor point, which is his Savior. Those were the most meaningful years of his life. The three years that he spent with the Savior absolutely changed his life forever. And the memories of his Savior he recorded in his gospel account so that we might believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. He wrote the Gospel of John so that we might believe and have life in his name. He penned his epistles, and particularly this letter, 1 John, so that those who believe might know that they have eternal life. A letter of assurance. The first four chapters of First John summarize these anchor points that he gives his church so that they might stand firm in their day. A day where an onslaught of uh, viewpoints of Political agendas uh, of a culture that was that was more and more hostile to the church and to the Christian worldview. He gave it. He gave them these three anchor points as a summary of the entire book found in this passage. The first anchor point of our faith that he gives us is found in verse 1 and in verse 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and who, and, and who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the first major anchor point he gives us is belief, but not just belief for the sake of belief, a belief in an object, and not just any object, but Jesus And he gives us two titles. And these two titles uh, are dripping with meaning that we can't get into uh, the depth of uh, this morning. But these two titles are Christ and the Son of God. And we are to believe in in, in Jesus in the right way. We are to believe in the right Jesus in the right way. Now, God's people are distinguished by their faith. The world, however, has many diluted expressions of faith, and sometimes it's expressed simply like a professional athlete who has just uh, uh, performed well on the field, and after the, after the game he's interviewed and they ask him, you know, what was it that you know, caused you to perform so well? And, and a lot of times they'll say, well, we just had to have faith. We just had to have faith in ourselves. We just had to have faith in our ability. We had to have faith in the team. The world's faith is both powerless and empty. Worldly faith is human in origin It cannot rise above this world. Its author is grounded in man. Its means is man-centered. Its basis and its grounds are all found in man. Whereas authentic godly faith, the kind of faith and belief that God has graciously given to each of us who believe, is divine in origin. Its power is from God who is the author. Thank God he is the author and not us. Worldly faith, however, focuses on this world and human achievement. Godly faith focuses on heaven and Jesus' accomplishments on our behalf. Worldly faith is is basically an object to itself. Or sincerity. As long as you believe sincerely, then it must be right for you, because man is the measure of all things. Godly, authentic faith has as its object, Jesus, the true measure of all things, in whom and from whom and by whom are all things. Authentic faith is from Jesus and focuses on Jesus, Jesus is the one and only worthy object of our faith. But even faith in Jesus Christ can sometimes be confusing, as there are many characterizations of who Jesus was. If we would get our information about who Jesus was from publications like Time magazine, then we might come to doubt the very existence of Jesus, yet alone who he was and what he came to do. There are many voices out there that say, it doesn't matter who or what Jesus was. What matters are the lessons that he taught. What matters is passing on those, letter, those, those lessons, those teachings. Kind of sounds like a, a few, not all, but a few of those preachers you might see on television... They might, say, they might say something like, the significance of Jesus' life is simply the inspiration that it gives us to love and sacrifice for others. Well, they might say the significance of his death is simply the example that it gives us to stay true to ourselves. Do you see how they turn it inward to self, man-centered? They even turn the life and death of Christ into kind of a sideshow and turn it as man-centered. God uh, God exists for our sake. But these conclusions about Jesus only serve to strip the gospel of its power. As the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus of his garments to prepare him for crucifixion, so today His enemies and our enemies strip him of his true identity and mission. And they are trying to desperately strip away from God's people any significance or relevance in this world whatsoever. What is it then that we are to believe about Jesus? Well, John reminds us in verse 1 that it is Jesus as the Christ, and in verse 5 that it's Jesus as the Son of God. Now, that reminds me of Peter's confession when, uh, to Jesus' question when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And Peter rightly answered, you are the Christ and the Son of the living God. The same two anchor points. John was there when Jesus asked that question, he, w- he would have heard Peter answer correctly. And he learned. And so he has included those two anchor points in this summary. That we are to believe in Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God. These two titles for Jesus go hand in hand. The word Christ is the New Testament uh, version or the New Testament um, equivalent to the Old Testament name Messiah, which means anointed one. So Jesus was God's anointed Savior. Jesus, the name Jesus itself means salvation. At his baptism, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit when he came down in the form of a dove. And then we heard a voice coming out of heaven, and what did that voice say? What did God say? He said, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. So when the dove came down, landed on Jesus' shoulder, signifying God's choice of Jesus as the promised Messiah way back from Genesis 3.15. So it signified both Jesus as the Messiah, and then God says, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. So we see the declaration by God Himself that Jesus is both Christ, Messiah, and the Son. So these two titles, Christ and Son of God, are demonstrated both uh, demonstrated at His baptism, in order for Jesus Jesus to fulfill His calling. In the Old Testament, God's uh, prophets, God raised up prophets, priests, and kings. To lead his people. And these prophets, priests, and kings, you know, over hundreds and hundreds of years, were anointed as God's leaders of his people. Prophets were given the authority by God to speak forth God's word, to foretell and to foretell God's word. To the people, and priests were given authority to intercede for the people through their prayers, but also to then offer sacrifices for the people. And then kings were given authority by God to rule and protect, to rule and protect God's people. So here now, as God is declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. God is now declaring Jesus as the one in whom all these three offices reside. Jesus, the only one in whom resides the, the, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king, united in one man. So the Jesus that we are required to believe in is this prophet, priest, and king Jesus. What if Jesus, when he were alive on earth, what if he were to have failed in any one of these offices? What if he were to have failed in his office as a prophet? What if he, wanted, what if he decided, God, I don't want to speak your words anymore. I want to speak my own. What if when the crowds wanted to make him their physical king to overthrow Rome, what if if that went to his head? What if he said, okay, I'll be your king? He would have failed, and we would not be here today. We would still be in our sins. What if Jesus would have failed in his priestly office? What if at the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed, what if during his prayer he... He said, Father, if it possible, take this cup from me. And then he got up off of his knees and said, Father, not your will, but my will be done. But we know that's not what he said. He said, Father, your will be done, not mine. But what if he wouldn't have said that? What if he would have just walked away right there? We would still be in our sins. He would have failed in his priestly office or maybe he decided well maybe I'll go to the cross and then when the guards came you know when he spoke a word and they fell to the ground what if he would have decided instead of just making them fall to the ground to just slay them all together and avoid being arrested he would have failed in his office of of, of priesthood and we would still be in our sins What if he were hanging on the cross and when the crowds called out you say you're God, you're the Savior save yourself, call angels and they will rescue you and what if he would have taken them up on their offer? He would have failed and we would still be in our sins but he didn't. What if he failed in his office as a king? What if he failed to protect us? What if he said okay People, I'm going to come part way, but you have to come part way. My, what, what the what the work that I'm going to do on your behalf it'll bring you maybe ninety percent of the way to God, but you have to provide the, your own ten percent. What if His salvation that He brought us was only something that He made possible? but that is contingent now upon our decision, upon our wills to choose him, we would still be in our sins. Because our wills are bound to our sinful nature, and our sinful nature is nothing but hostile to God and cannot know God and will not ever come to God. But Jesus didn't do that. He was a faithful king He went the the full way. Salvation is 100% of God. What about our side of it? What if we deny his word? What if we deny that he is our prophet? What if we deny his prophetic office? We can't just pick and choose what we want to obey. We don't get to decide what scripture is true and what isn't. If we do, then we are believing in another Jesus. If we do not believe it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die in the flesh, then we deny him his priestly office, and we are still in our sins. To believe in Jesus as the Christ is to recognize that we are filthy sinners who cannot stand before God who cannot justify ourselves, who cannot point to anything in and of ourselves that God would be pleased with and that can make us right with God. To believe in the right Jesus is to recognize that Jesus was God's appointed man to take our punishment for us and that he was the only one who could do that. As a priest, he not only made Sacrifice an offering for sins once for all time, but he offered himself once for all time. So to, to deny his priestly office is to believe in another Jesus. And thirdly, if we don't accept Jesus as our king, to do all that he commands us, if we resist his rule in our lives and would prefer that he be a fellow subject along with us, not allowing him to tell us what to do or, or what to believe, then we are denying him as the Christ. We believe in another Jesus. And we are setting aside these important anchor points that we need to hold on to more than ever, now more than ever in our day. But right belief is not the only anchor point of our faith. He gives us a second, love. Verses 1 and 2. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Love probably is the most misunderstood ideal in the world today. Hollywood fails miserably in its attempts to portray love. Uh, The music industry provides us with um, a self-centered and narcissistic concept of love, big-time events and venues that that the world tries to take advantage of to, to thrust forth their anchor point. I think of the Super Bowl this past February. the halftime shows are always always interesting pretty predictable you just never know what kind of a, an agenda that they're pushing but it's also it's an opportunity for the world to come together and put forth their their primary message summarized in three words and in this case at the end of the halftime show at the when the cameras were panning to the the stadium the stands the fans course, as often is the case, they put these colored panels underneath their seats, and so at a particular time, uh, they are cued. they'll raise these panels up and then over the whole stadium, it's uh, supposed to spell something or give some kind of a message. In this case, if you recall, that message was believe in love. I don't even know what that means. But The world thinks it does, the world thinks that it is able to come together unified under that banner, but the world defines love on its own terms. And they do so apart from their loving creator. They do so in the wrong context. They do so in a vacuum. At best, their idea of love is some noble act of self-sacrifice. Noble, but ultimately empty. Empty simply because it denies the one to whom it owes its very existence. Mankind longs to be loved. It longs to love, express love. But it will only find it in the context of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're the only ones that have that message. What a powerful proof this is of genuine faith when the people of God love one another. As those who are born of God, love is twofold. Love for God and love for God's people. The two cannot be separated. One authenticates the other. One proves the other. So, if I ask you, do you love your Heavenly Father? Then you must ask yourself, do I love one another? If I say, do you love one another? Then you must ask yourself, well, yes, but do I love my Heavenly Father? One cannot be done without the other. The most loving thing that we can do for one another brothers and sisters, is to love our Heavenly Father. One of the most poignant pieces of advice that was ever given to me as a father, a husband and father, was someone who once said that the most important thing that you can do, the greatest thing that a father can do for his children, is to love their mother. And so I repeat, the most loving an important thing that we can do for one another is to love our Heavenly Father. Love is really a natural outcome of the union that we have with Christ. You see an example, a, a carrot seed. A carrot seed cannot produce strawberries because it's not in the carrot seed's nature to do so. Carrots have carrot DNA. Strawberries have strawberry DNA. And they cannot produce anything other than their own kind. So the true child of God has within him the seed of God, from which now sprouts true love and true affection for God and his people. See, before Christ, the seed that we had in us was really the seed of man, the sinful seed of man, and we could only produce that which is consistent with the sinful seed of man. But when God changes your life, when Christ transforms your life, everything changes. You now have the seed of God in you, and that seed of God, when sprouts, it can only produce the things consistent with godliness and righteousness. My own personal conversion experience uh, was that at the age of 17, suddenly the blinders were, it's hard, you can't explain it, the blinders were lifted after many months of friends sharing the gospel with me and finally the blinders were lifted and I came to Christ and I didn't really know how to ex- express it. The only thing I could remember is that how... Much God loved me. I was a rebel and a sinner and one who, and a hypocrite and, and one who was hostile to God and his people. Not really actively, not really blatantly, but very passively. But we know nothing else except that God loves us. J.I. Packer, when asked what the most profound theological truth was that he had learned in his long life, he's now 90 years old, he responded, and this is one of the, yeah, one of the most profound theologians of the 20th and 21st centuries. A well-loved author, but he responded to this, when he was asked what the most profound theological truth was that he had learned in his long life, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. John was at the end of his life as well, and that's what he, the message that he wanted to get across in his letter to his people. He, he focuses on the love of God in 1 John. And so here we see the ultimate proof of God's love for us, Jesus' atoning death on our behalf, where John says, Beloved, let us love one another, and then he goes on to express that and to, help to show and to demonstrate that, how that, is, how that was demonstrated to us. Ultimately, by Jesus' atoning death on our behalf. And it's a death that, that does far more than inspire us to be true to ourselves. Jesus' death Jesus was sent that we might actually live through him, not simply be inspired to do the right thing. He was sent to satisfy God's wrath against us because our sins are what was the problem. Our sins are what was keeping us from God. And so we needed his atoning death to satisfy God's wrath and to make us right with God. From Genesis 3.15 until today, we understand that there is a cosmic conflict that is raging between the seed of the serpent and the promised seed of the woman that would crush Satan's head, a promise that was fulfilled at the cross where violence was committed against the Son of God. A violence that we deserved because of the treachery of our sin against God, because our violations against God's law, and because of our offenses against his holy character. A violence that we deserved, and we alone deserved. But Jesus out of his covenant love endured the cross, enduring the shame on our behalf for his people. We certainly can only love because he loved us first and demonstrated it. So, That's our second anchor point. First, believe rightly and believe in the right object. Secondly, love God. Love one another. Thirdly, John points to the anchor point that helps to produce courage and perseverance in our faith, and that is the anchor point of obedience. Right belief produces real love, and real love produces obedience to God. He says in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So verse 3 reminds me of what my teachers would often say, and my reaction to my teachers. Even if I were fully concentrating on what they were teaching me, uh, if they were to say something like, now this is important to know, class, or remember this for the test. My ears would perk up, I'd get my notes out, start writing down furiously what, he would, what they would say. Verse 3 here is like that, when John says, for this is the love of God. John has been talking about love for a couple of chapters And it's as, if, it's, it's as if he's saying, listen up, here are my final thoughts that I want to leave with you regarding the love of God. That, and, and we might expect him to repeat uh, what he had just written in, in chapter 4. He said, chapter 4, he said, for this is the love of God. Now, we might expect him to say, well, okay, that uh, this is the love of God, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But he didn't say that. He said, for this is the love of God. He might say, well that Jesus left the glory of heaven to dwell on earth well he didn't say that or he might say for this is the love of God that Christ died for us well these are all good and right and true but these, these are not what he said John instead he's not talking, he, he, instead he says uh, that what he's talking about he says that you are to love one another this is the love of God and ultimately he says love that you are to love one another and you are to love God and so what he's talking about is not God's love for us in this case but our love for God. What is it that demonstrates more than anything else that we love God? Obedience keeping his commandments nothing profound just keep his commandments this was the very first test of, of, of the history of mankind. The test of obedience. God told Adam what he could do and what he could not do. What he could do was a lot more than what he couldn't do. He said, what you can do, Adam, is eat of all the trees in the garden. Look, look at all these trees. Hundreds, if not thousands of trees in this lush garden that I have provided for you. But there's one tree you can't. That tree is forbidden to you. But, like human nature, when we're told not to do something, God gave Adam this one simple commandment, Thou shalt not. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A simple test of obedience, but he failed it. The most perfect human beings ever had walked the face of the earth, and they failed the test. They fell from their state of perfection, plunging the entire human race, Into an estate of sin and misery. They failed the test of obedience and they failed it for all of us. Now, sometimes I think, well, if I would have been there, I would have made a different choice. But Adam and Eve were the most perfect human beings to have ever lived and they fell. What's. Who are we to think that we would have made any different choice given the opportunity? But. Praise be to God. They were not the only perfect human beings ever to walk the face of the earth. God sent forth his own son, sinless, flawless. The second Adam, as the scriptures say, the last Adam, the one John here calls the Christ, the Son of God, the second Adam also underwent the test of obedience to God, and he passed. He passed where Adam, the first Adam, failed. Where the first Adam became our condemnation, Christ, the second Adam, has become our salvation. Where the first Adam stripped mankind of original righteousness by which we are right with God, the second Adam, Jesus, has given us our clothes back. We now wear Jesus' garments of righteousness. And this is why it is so futile to gain acceptance with God through our own righteousness because we don't have it apart from Christ not only could we ever have enough of our own righteousness to satisfy God but we don't even have the right kind of righteousness an ounce of Christ's righteousness is worth infinitely more than a pound of our own This is vitally important to understanding John's next comment. His commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not a burden? Because if we are born of God, then we have the right righteousness. We have the seed of God to be able to not only just keep his commands, but to want to keep his commands to love his commands. John records in his gospel, if you love me, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. Jesus isn't making a threat here. He's not saying like parents say to their children if, if you know, if children if your parents have ever said something like this, you will eat your spinach and you will like it. He's not making a threat like that. He's saying if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's making a statement of fact. He's making a cause and effect. He's saying, if you love me, that means you have the seed of God in you, and it is inevitable that you will love me and you will keep my commandments. Obedience is what passes the test. And for authentic believers... We obey because it is in our own nature to do so. And it's not a burden, but rather a delight. The attitude that we should express toward God's commandments should be one of delight and thanksgiving. Listen to the attitude that the the psalmists give us in their writings. For example, I will give thanks to thee with uprightness of heart, When I learn thy righteous judgments, or or another one says, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. Somewhere else, I I shall delight in thy statues. And in another place, I shall delight in thy commandments which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to thy commandments which I love. I delight to do thy will. O my God. Do these sound like men who are weighed down by God's commandments? It sounds like these are men that have been freed and they've been freed up to do God's will and they delight in it. If we are born of God, then his commandments are not burdensome, plain and simple. Jesus bids us to come to him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if we feel weighed down by God's commands, then we can conclude one of two things. Either we are not born of God, or the burden that we feel is not because of God's commands, but because of our weakness. You see, we haven't arrived yet. John says that when we see Jesus, we will be like him. But we haven't arrived there yet. We're becoming like him. And so we are burdened by our own weaknesses, and that is what causes God's commands to be so burdensome but they shouldn't be. He has taken our burdens, and he has now given us the power to obey. He has not only revealed us what to obey, but he's giving us, us the power to obey. For indeed, while we in, we, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. Paul had a classic example of struggle, and the source of Paul's burden was not the law of God, but it was the law of sin in his flesh, working against the law of God. It's our sinfulness and our weakness that are the cause of our burdens. God's commands are a source of joy and a comfort. They are what a genuine believer longs for. The Word of God serves to stir up our affections instead of weighing us down. If we are born of God, brothers and sisters, we will keep his commandments. Hold on to these anchor points in a society, in a culture that is more and more opposed to the Christian worldview, to the church. Hang on to these anchor points. Belief in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, love for the children of God, and obedience to God's commands. The world calls us to believe in love and do whatever makes us happy. God has a better way. Believe in Him and in His only Son, and you will come to know the God who demonstrated His eternal love for you by setting you free And now you are free to joyfully obey him in all that he says. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done on our behalf to set us free, to make us right, O Jesus, with God. Sustain us, encourage us in these days that are evil and are only set against you, O God, and us, your people. Hold on to us, God. We are not strong enough in our own grip to hold on to you, but your grip is unbreakable. Hold on to us. In Christ's name, amen.